Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 102, Franco Makes His Move. Last time, the people of Spain stumbled into a civil war as sections of the military attempted a coup that was supposed to have made short work of the legitimate Republican government in Madrid. Yet that quick strike failed, as we have seen. So now both sides, unwilling to back down, knew they were in for a long-term struggle and prepared accordingly. For the Nationalists attempting to take over, their best soldiers were the 40,000-man Army of Africa. These troops, combined with the 50,000 men of the Metropolitan Army, though badly supplied and barely trained, along with 40% of the assault guard and 60% of the civilian guard plus officers, gave them a total of roughly 130,000 men. To oppose them, with Prime Minister Hial disbanding the army, Madrid had about 50,000 soldiers who decided to stay and fight, and some 30,000 troops from the paramilitary security services, all being led by 7,000 officers and 22 generals. This gave them a total around 90,000 men. Yet the capital also held the factories that was the country's major industry. This, along with possessing the country's gold, most of the mining areas, the navy, and the citrus fruit export trade, which was Spain's largest foreign currency earner, gave the Republicans an edge that should have seen them through. But what the Republican government was to find that, in this civil war, they were mostly on their own. America and Britain would eventually assist, but in the form of credits and oil. The Nationalists, on the other hand, would have the direct help of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, in the form of air and naval support, as well as logistical and technical support. This last type of assistance would be very telling. But at the very outset of this contest, with the Nationalists striking at the Republic's core, and the reaction of Madrid in trying to save itself, a sense of revolution was released. The Republic still existed, on paper, but those fighting to save it quickly realized they had the power now, and would benefit the most if their side won. As one Republican fighter put it, the government does not exist. We collaborate with them, but they can do no more than sanction whatever is done by the masses. So the have-nots were fighting the rebel army, but the prize was no longer just survival, but the entire Spanish state. As cities were fought over and the people had to decide which side to join, foreign correspondents started flocking to Spain. War is always good copy, civil war doubly so as the angst behind the conflict is equally moving. Yet because of the very chaos being reported, the facts were not getting out about either side. So the numbers of deaths and those injured were always wrong, being vastly overestimated. This hurt the Republicans more than the Nationalists at first, as they needed British and French help. But with the war being reported as a series of horrific killings, London stayed away in helping either side, and Paris followed suit. Not until the tragedy of the bombing of Guernica in April of 37, where somewhere between 150 and 1,500 civilians were killed, 
as they participated in a market day in northern Spain, carried out by German and Italian bombers at the behest of Franco, did sympathy really rise up for the people of Spain and the Republican government, thus giving the British and French an excuse to assist Madrid. As this was a civil war, the conflict could not simply be taking enemy territory while holding one's own. No, it was a time for revenge. Areas held by the nationalists saw the executions of those on the left, as well as any atheists caught. As the Catholic Church was a strong supporter of those on the political right, morality was quickly intertwined in the war's goals. As for the Republicans, their attacks were powered by ideas of getting back at those of position, who had suppressed the peasants since time immemorial. But their desire for revenge wasn't automatic. When war came, the people properly placed the blame where it belonged, on those officers who launched the coup. But as time went on, the commoners thought wider and considered their own harsh reality, as opposed to that of the country. This led them to want to strike back at the clergy, landowners, factory owners, and even shopkeepers, which dispels some of the early reporting that said some of the violence was random. It was not. The people considered those who put the country in this latest pickle, but then remembered all those who conspired with the military to keep them down and humble. Now, as it was clear to all, the war would be dragged out, the military realized their mistake in not formulating something for the people to rally around. Yes, their goal was centralized authoritarianism, a republican dictatorship, the return of the Alphonsine monarchy, but in what form would the government be? For now, with the fighting so fresh, the Junta de Defense Nacional was established and was provided over by General Cabanellas, the divisional commander at Saragossa. Cabanellas was supported and advised by nine generals and two colonels. All this had been the brainchild of General Mola, who, truth be told, feared General Franco's power, so established said body to weaken that general. As a fellow general put it later, General Goddard was more intelligent, General Mola a better soldier, but Franco was the most ambitious and this ambition showed itself early on. By August of 36, barely into the fighting, after Sanjuro's death, Franco was now letting it be known that he was ready to lead the cause. But as his real views were not nailed down, he could, at any time, confirm or deny where he stood on the various issues. To the phalangists, he promised them they would not be relegated to a second-class status with him in charge. As for General Mola, he did not think Franco could survive the politics of leadership, so did not feel threatened by him at first. But it was Franco's very lack of positions that made him so appealing to so many nationalists. They could impose on him their notions of what was best, because they didn't know where he really stood. Franco, along with every other nationalist general, was seeking power, because the chaos that was Spain was total. For one, many of the institutions that helped the government function saw many of its members back the military. For another, the left-center government of Madrid 
was not only fighting the right-of-center enemy, but was also confronted by a left-center rebellion. Spain quickly dissolved into many smaller civil wars. And now for something more superficial. As the unions were doing the brunt of the fighting for Madrid, and they decided not to or weren't able to shave on a regular basis, their beards gave them a sinister look. The foreign press picked up on this, which did not help the Republican cause early on. And the union workers, now soldiers, remembered the hesitancy the government had in giving them arms. So the blue-collar men weren't fighting for Madrid so much as they were fighting to stay alive and build something better for those who came after them. And they took this responsibility seriously. As government control disintegrated, the local unions set up committees of all kinds. They saw to it that a sort of order was kept. They kept things running, even the law. Those accused would have their day in court and were provided with legal assistance. Within weeks, the random shooting of those accused dropped as the unions strove to maintain order and decency when they could. What cities the unions controlled strove for equality, as that had been denied to them. In fact, militia women were allowed to fight on the front line. But it must be noted that probably never more than 1,000 women did so. The rest, and there were thousands of them, remained in rear areas. In the future, Franco would have a large number of these women shot, which shocked the German ambassador as they were in the middle of a lunch. Franco put down his cutlery, gave the order, and resumed eating. When the military situation worsened for the Republicans, the women would find themselves sent back to the rear areas. Whether this was compassion or a military necessity, they found themselves losing heart over losing the ability to defend their families and communities. By the beginning of August of 36, the areas of control by each side started firming up. The rebel generals, having failed in a coup, quickly moved to grab more territory to show the outside world they were winning. Hopefully, this sense of pending victory would motivate Germany and Italy to send them more supplies, while discouraging other democracies from helping Madrid. In that light, General Mola sent out three forces from Pamplona in the far north. The first headed for Madrid. The second force, of about 1,400 men, headed to the southeast for Saragossa. Their job was to reinforce the nationalist garrison there that was holding but clearly needed help. The third group made their way west towards the Basque coastline. The force of 1,000 men, under the command of Colonel Garcia Esquemez, headed towards the capital, got as far as Guadalajara, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers northeast of Madrid. But there, they were held up as the town was already in the possession of armed workers. Garcia Esquemenez had his men turn to the west to come at Madrid directly from the north. This time, they came up against Madrid militias holding the pass. If they tried to circle even further to the west, their supply lines would have become untenable. So, battle was given. After several days of fighting, the nationalist forces captured the pass, 
but had to halt as they were almost completely out of ammunition. As the capture of the capital would hopefully end the war, Mola sent out another force, this one coming at Madrid from the northwest. But again, they had to swing around in a counterclockwise fashion after running into stiff resistance. By the time they captured a pass to the southwest of Madrid, they too were out of ammunition and thus had to halt. One would think that the conspirators would have built up a large cache of supplies for such a moment, but they had not. These two stalemates would remain until Franco sent both groups supplies given to him from Germany. Yet by the time the nationalists were armed, the militia had themselves regrouped and formed much stronger defensive lines. General Mola sent out another force, his largest, of some 3,500 men, but they went north. Their objective was to capture San Sebastian, which would cut off any help coming from France. Also, the Republican strip of territory to the far north would be equally isolated from the rest of Europe. On August 11th, Mola's men placed themselves in between San Sebastian and the Spanish border town of Irun. With them so placed, three nationalist warships arrived and began to shell Irun. But the Republican governor there threatened to shoot nationalist hostages if the shelling resulted in massive civilian casualties. The nationalists ignored his warning and continued with their naval bombardment. This attack was then followed up by bombing raids carried out by Franco's JU-52s. Both Irun and San Sebastian were targeted. The Republicans had a force of some 3,000 men made up of the CNT Union Militia, French Communists and Basque Nationalists, and they held their own for a while. But Mola's local commander, Major Bayerlegi, used the JU-52s effectively, along with artillery sent by Franco, as well as 700 men from the Foreign Legion. Positions changed hands several times. French peasants tried to help the Republicans by calling out the position of the Nationalist artillery. The battle close to the French territory made Paris nervous and, under pressure from London, closed the border. This was just as seven supply trucks were on their way to the defenders. The Republicans eventually ran out of bullets, but then they started picking up rocks to throw at the oncoming Foreign Legion soldiers. Madrid tried to send a train of supplies to the north, but as it would be coming through France, it did not reach those that needed it, due to the closed border. Irun was devastated, and in that state, the Nationalists marched in on September 14th. The Northern Republican area was now surrounded. During the first two months of the war, Hitler's planes had carried some 12,000 soldiers from North Africa to Spain. By then, the Straits of Gibraltar belonged to the Nationalists, so ships could then be used. A major reason for this was that the warships controlled by the sailors' committees did not have the confidence for offensive action. If they had been attacked, yes, they would return fire. But taking the fight to your former superior officers and your social betters seemed to be a hurdle many could not get over. As it was, the Nationalist Navy forces left them alone until at such time 
it was necessary to engage them. With more of his Moroccan regulars and legionnaires coming over, Franco himself made the trip on August 6th. He settled in Seville and then split his forces into two. One group of about 400 men would begin to secure Andalusia, Spain's southern region, while the other, much larger force, made for Madrid. The soldiers who would be staying to the south were led by Colonel Varela, who had been jailed for disloyalty to Madrid, but had since then been released by the insurgents. Varela took his force as far to the northeast as Cordoba, but then pushed on back to the southeast, closer to the coast, to help the embattled nationalist forces at Granada. When that was secured, the idea was to move on further east and take the entire southern coast. But then the recently captured Cordoba was being assaulted by a 3,000-man Republican unit. On August 20th, Varela rushed back to help resist the Republican force. Cordoba would stay in nationalist hands throughout the war. Varela was once again ready to move out east, but by now his force was spent. His men went due south to secure more territory, but they never made it past Granada. Still, for several hundred miles or kilometers, Seville, Franco's base, was secure. Franco's larger force, commanded by Colonel Yagüe, was ordered to move north, parallel of the Portuguese border, then turn northeast and make for Madrid. Franco meant to see a quick end to the Republican defiance. Yagüe split his force into five self-contained columns of 1,500 each, of regulars and legionnaires, moving in stolen lorries, or trucks. Each column also had a 75mm artillery piece and were supported overhead by Italian bomber transports, flown by Italians and JU-52s, operated by Luftwaffe personnel. Yagüe ordered his men to double-time it, to literally tear down the main road in their various groups and to not stop unless resistance was met. Opposing them was General Jose Miaja, the commander of the Southern Front. Miaja had under him loyal, regular troops of Madrid militia and local volunteers, and, truth be told, they were the only reason he did not defect, as they would have shot him. The soldiers of Miaja were up to the task of fighting the army of North Africa, but the same could not be said of their officers. One foreign writer observed that the general staff sat around, enjoying good food, told dirty stories, and seemingly did not care about their men or their duty. They didn't even try to make contact with the front for hours at a time, and even ignored the wounded. This is what Yagwe was rushing towards. The locals in between the two opposing forces did not try to ambush the oncoming trucks as the men stayed close to their homes to protect their families. When the attackers came upon a town or village, they would stop and demand the local surrender. If they, the people, offered no resistance, opened their doors and put out white flags, Varela's men would jump out of their trucks and approach the buildings from different directions. If there was resistance, the locals would normally bunch up for the supposed security that it offered, and then the attacker's artillery was brought forward to make short work of the village men, normally armed with shotguns.
Either way, once a town was taken, the shootings would begin. Supposedly, this was revenge for the many killings of nationalists by communists. But the deaths were random. Cuaipo de Llano would declare over the radio that most families of Republicans were now mourning, and that number would only grow. Another effective psychological stunt by him. Again, the defenders did not want to seem cowardly to their comrades, so refused to dig trenches. This made the work of the bombers that much easier. But sometimes the attackers' own success worked against them. A local populace would be so afraid that they would load up what they could and get on the road to Madrid, thus blocking it against the invaders. During one attack, the locals actually stormed the guards who were guarding the lorries, loaded them up with their families and cherished items, and only then made a run for the capital. Another time, the radio broadcast of Dayano so terrified one town that after the men had gotten their women and children out of there, they returned with their shotguns and laid in wait for the soldiers. They all died, but they took some of the rebels with them and, more importantly, bought their families' time with their lives. By August 10th, Yagüey had pushed his men so hard they had covered more than 300 kilometers, or 186 miles, due north. This brought them to Merida, on the border with Portugal. But at a Roman stone bridge just south of the city, the locals defied the attackers. Urging them on was Anita Lopez, who had organized the defense. Yet later that night, the attackers launched an overwhelming charge across the bridge. The town was taken. Lopez and many others died that night for their defiance. But the next day, those who had survived the massacre were joined by assault and civilian guards sent by Madrid, and they launched their own counterattack. Clearly, Yagüe's advance had come to an end. But Franco then ordered him to leave some of his troops there, but to take the rest and move due west to the border. Franco wanted to be able to report to the world that the nationalist forces of the North and South had been joined by him, thus making it seem that, indeed, more Spanish territory had come under their control. With the majority of his force, Yagüe moved out west and soon came to the town of Badajoz. There, waiting, were less than 2,000 militia, barely armed, and another 500 regulars all under the command of a local colonel. But the defenders had troubles enough, even before this latest threat, as they had already been resisting the local civil guards who had thrown in with the nationalists. Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 103, Wars Within Wars. Last time, Colonel Yagüe, under Franco's direct orders, had taken the majority of his force and headed away from the fighting at Merida, which was being defended by forces from Madrid. The idea was to head west, then turn north, and only then turn back east to make for the capital. 
Speed was the order of the day. Franco's orders. Colonel Yagwe reached Badajoz on August 14th. Surrounding the town were the city's walls, which held several gates. Yagwe broke up his column into several groups and ordered them to hit the multiple gates at the same time, thus weakening the defender's strength. On August 14th at 5.30 p.m., the attack was launched. Artillery was fired into the town while bombers attacked from above. Under such circumstances, the Foreign Legion had little trouble breaking their way into the main gates. That's when the killing started. The Legionnaires used grenades to drive the people from whatever structures they were hiding in, and then used their bayonets to finish them off. It mattered little if they were resistors or civilians. The last of the initial resistors were shot on the steps of the cathedral. Those that were left were herded into a local bullring. Then the looting, less organized than the attack, started. Even nationalist property was seized by the attacking soldiers, who couldn't care less. The regulars would send most of their booty back to North Africa. It would take care of their families, as well as motivate other Moroccans to join Franco's army. As for the legionnaires, they, having more experience of this, simply opened the mouths of the dead, looked for gold fillings, and if some were found, used their rifle butts to break them out. By September 2nd, Yagwe had moved far enough west and then north to now turn back east to head for the capital. At first, his force was attacked, ineffectually, by an air squadron hired by French writer André Malieux, but little damage was done. Then the invaders ran into the 8,000-man army of General Riquelme. Normally, this would have been the end of the advance due to sheer numbers, but Yagwe outflanked the larger force and thus confused and demoralized them. Riquelme's men were made to feel that the attackers were all around them, able to strike at any time. Hence, the militia force backpedaled to keep the attackers in front of them. Yet, some of the defenders, having more experience, stayed behind to hinder Riquelme with guerrilla tactics. Yangwe kept his swift movements going. In fact, not until Hitler's panzers broke into eastern France would anyone see such quick advances. In early September, Yagwe's men had reached Talvera de Reina, the last major town before Madrid, just some 40 miles or 64 kilometers away. There, waiting for the nationalist force, were the remainder of the scattered force that ran earlier, with a few more units from Madrid. So now those men totaled some 10,000. Yet that mighty army was also demoralized, as the army of Africa seemed unstoppable. But to make it worse for the defenders, they were soon hit by artillery fire and aerial bombardment. That was it for the militia. Most threw down their weapons and ran for the capital. By the afternoon of September 3rd, the only thing opposing Yagoy's men were Republican weapons lying on the ground. The road to Madrid was open. Yagwe's amazing success was the story of the hour, on both sides of the conflict. As such, Franco also enjoyed the limelight, and he needed it. At that moment, Franco was only one of several generals. 
No one expected him to take charge of the nationalist cause, or, frankly, would follow him if he did. Franco knew this and knew he had to do something about it, if he wanted to ever lead, and his time had come. Though the road was open to Madrid, Franco ordered Yagüey to turn southeast to assist the defenders of the Alcazar fortress covered earlier. Yagüey, who had performed miracles, certainly compared to everyone else, screamed his protest. In reaction, Franco sacked him and replaced him with Valrella on September 18th, who was finishing up in the south. The question is, why did Franco make this seemingly horrendous mistake? The war could have been over. But when one considers the larger picture, that is not necessarily the case. The defense of the Alcazar, below the capital, rated almost as high as Yagüe's march on Madrid. It had come to represent the reputation of the nationalist cause and its ability. So to Franco's thinking, if he could rescue the troubled fortress, then his stature would rise tremendously, possibly making him the de facto leader. How could Mola, in the north, still battling for the Basque region, or Dejano frightening the world with his grim radio announcements, compete with that? On the other hand, if Franco had his troops march on Madrid, one, he would have to somehow conquer this very large city, and two, as he was not the nationalist leader, would basically be handing over victory to someone else. No, better to secure the leadership first, and then take Madrid. As has been stated, Franco was ambitious, but he was also a political animal, who could sense what was best for him. The militia attacking the Alcazar fortress had been awed by Yagüe's speed, and motivated by it. They had to take the structure before then, before the nationalists got to Madrid. Yet their increased efforts did not, could not, change reality. The fortress had been built by Romans, who knew a thing or two about stone. The militia, in their frustration, wasted many rifle shells against its outer walls. But even when a 175mm artillery gun was pulled up, its larger shells only damaged the outer walls. The base of the fortress was protected by submerged rock. It wasn't going anywhere. And, as every war has its own strange stories, twice a day the militia and the nationalist troops would stop firing at each other, long enough to allow a blind beggar to walk unhurt between their lines. Then the shooting and catcalls would commence once again. Yet even before this, the Republicans had given the Nationalists a tremendous psychological victory. Back in late July, after the siege had just begun, the Republicans had captured Luis Moscardo, the son of Colonel Moscardo, the first Count of Alcazar of Toledo. On July 23rd, a message was sent to the fortress that if the Nationalists did not surrender the fort, then the colonel's son would be shot. Moscardo, inside the Alcazar, asked to speak to his son. This was allowed. The father told the boy over the phone to die bravely. In essence, the Nationalists had called the militia's bluff. The next day, no word came from the Republicans, 
that the young man had been killed. Nor the day after that. Nor the day after that. Truth is, he would be executed, but only after a month, and that was in revenge for a bombing raid on the besiegers. But as the threat had not been followed through, the Republicans had their desire to win questioned, whereas the Nationalists were applauded for their willingness to endure anything to win. Clearly, their cause must have been right that God was on their side. Wasn't Abraham willing to kill Isaac, God his own son? The sadder part of this tale is that the 100 women and children held hostage within the fortress were killed. As the Nationalists had believed, Luis Moscardo had been executed the day after the threat was given. The siege of Alcazar would waste many Republican forces who stood hard by the stone fortress they could never take, instead of attempting to deal with Franco's threat to Madrid. In late September, Varela's relief force was within striking distance of the fortress. The Republicans ran away. Well, most of them. Some stayed behind to offer resistance. Colonel Moscardo stepped up and told the remaining militia from Madrid that if they surrendered, none would be harmed. The men gave up, hopeless and overwrought. But Varela ignored the promise of the colonel and shot the men. All of them. Blood was soon running down the steps of buildings. Two hundred wounded Republican soldiers were found in a nearby hospital, and they too were killed with grenades and bayonet. Pregnant women, having been found in the basement, were dispatched likewise. By now, everyone who was watching, and everyone was watching, could clearly see that the Nationalists had the ability and the means to take the fight to any Republican holdout, whereas the militia, fighting for Madrid, could not seem to inflict serious damage against the general's better-equipped troops. Certainly the Union workers, turned soldiers, were outsupplied, but that was mostly the fault of the Prime Minister, whoever it was at the moment, and local governors. A Soviet advisor wrote back to Stalin that only one Republican fighter in three had a rifle. A bit further south of the capital, but above the coastline, another nationalist siege was being endured. At the mountain monastery of Santa Maria de la Cabeza, some 1,200 nationalist civil guards were being harassed by a large force of militia. As the area was mountainous, the rebel generals could not get supplies to their men, until someone thought outside the regulations manual. Tying food and light equipment to live turkeys, the animals were pushed out of planes flying overhead and naturally went into panic mode. They couldn't fly, but they could slow down their descent with the flapping of their wings. The men below would gather the supplies and the birds and then eat them. Waste not, want not. The defenders would hold out until April of 37, but their heroic story was not covered as much as Alcazar's. The thinking is, it would have upset Franco, the up-and-coming general, as those nationalist troops were not under his command, and hence would have turned the spotlight to someone else. The greatest weakness suffered by the Republicans' militia, again mostly made up of workers, were themselves. 
Their weapons were always dirty. No one made them clean them. Discipline was non-existent, and of course, respect for one's superiors could not be maintained, because most of the workers-slash-soldiers were fighting the rebel generals and anyone else trying to control them. Still, on paper, the Republican fighting force was structured thusly. Ten men made a section. Those ten men elected their own corporal. Each one hundred men made a centuria. They elected their own delegate. An individual militia could have a wide variety number of centuria, and within each militia there was a regular army officer attached. Not that he was in command, but rather acted as a military advisor. However, if his sympathies were questioned even in the slightest, he was ignored and his life wasn't worth very much. As for the Balearic Islands off Spain's east coast, they, as we have seen, were quickly captured by the nationalists. Yet Madrid could not let such a gesture go unchallenged. The Catalonian militia of some 8,000 men were sent over and retook Ibiza, the large island closest to the mainland. Then the Republican force was sent over to Mallorca, the force under the command of an air officer, Alberto Bello, he would later be Fidel Castro's guerrilla trainer, reached shore easily enough and established a bridgehead. As they had the numbers, it seemed that this larger island, too, would fall. But then Bello had the men stop. It shouldn't have been exhaustion, more like surprise that everything was going along so easily against veteran troops. What's more, the Republicans had, for once, the advantage in arms, artillery, naval support, and some aircraft. Yet that didn't matter, as the men just sat there on the beach. This allowed the Nationalists to regroup and send in reinforcements of their own. But more importantly, Italy sent over their own military aircraft, who strafed and bombed the would-be invaders. After a few frantic communiques back to Madrid, the recently installed Minister of Marine ordered a withdrawal. But as the Italian bombing did not cease, the withdrawal became a rout, and the Republicans never again tried to retake the islands. Thus, the war for Spain went along. But almost always, there are wars within wars. Chaos accompanies conflict, and that allows those who recognize such things opportunities. Stalin would use their worker and peasant anti-fascist militia organization to fill out their sponsored and supported 5th Regiment. Word from Moscow was, make them look and act like soldiers to inspire the people and gain the trust of the government. This was put into action. Actual military training was considered secondary. The communist companies would march throughout Madrid and, to Stalin's credit, earn the appreciation of the locals. Though it could not have been hard to impress anyone, certainly when they were compared to the militia, who, as we have seen, had little need or desire for discipline. This type of training would become the blueprint for the international brigades that would follow. Stalin made sure that whoever volunteered was well doctrinated before being sent out. Supposedly, this was to make sure the men knew what they were fighting for, 
as that would steal their souls for combat further. With each group was a political commissar, someone Moscow, not Madrid, trusted. On the books, the commissar's job was to watch the officers, as they had such an important role in guiding the men. But really, they were there to make sure that nothing stopped Stalin's plans for secretly taking over the militias. Because if Republican Spain was going to win this war, their forces would eventually have to be transformed into a regular army. And if this happened, Moscow would, in time, control Spain's army. And if they won, Stalin would control the only armed, trained, and disciplined men in the country. Wars within wars. Wars. 